An episode or two ago, I I uh, ventured into one of my unpopular opinions, which is that the sons of God in Genesis six are um, are celestial beings who intermarry with human women. That's one unpopular opinion. Here's an here's another one. It's it's a completely different subject, but it's tied together um, by the common theme of not many people think that. So, uh, so I'll just begin with the confession. I believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, um, if you've listened to sermon tapes and that sort of thing, uh, I, when I'm quoting Hebrews, I'll, I'll often say, uh, as the author of Hebrews says, or um, you know, some circumlocution like that. And it's because uh, my view on this is not a generally accepted view, not a popular view, and it's not that I'm afraid of being associated with the view. I just don't want to change the subject. I don't want to go down a rabbit, uh, go, you know, down a rabbit hole, or, or in some cases down a wormhole. If I'm trying, if I'm just simply making a point in passing, I don't want to um, bring in the whole Pauline authorship of of Hebrews. But uh, let me um, spend just a few minutes talking about it uh, because I do think that Paul wrote. Hebrews. The, the basic, um, the summary of the argument against the Pauline author of, uh, Pauline authorship of Hebrews is this. The letter just doesn't sound like him. So if you, if you read uh, Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and you're, you know, you're steeped in the Pauline cadences and then you come to Hebrews, it's not that it's not that there's any disagreement between Hebrews and what we see elsewhere in Paul, but there certainly is a stylistic difference. The, the Greek of the epistle to the Hebrews is, um, is eloquent, stylized Greek. Um, Paul's letters are often written in the heat of the moment. Galatians comes to mind. Or, you know, and in Ephesians, there's a, there's a sentence that Paul never gets around to completing. You know, he and you, you don't have it's not the polished, stylized Greek that you find in the book of Hebrews. So, uh, many people say, See, uh, the Apostle Paul couldn't have written it, the style is completely uh, different. That's basically the argument, doesn't sound like him. Uh, the illustration I use is if you if you're familiar with the, the great Puritan, the great Scottish Presbyterian writer, rather, uh, Samuel Rutherford. Uh, if you're familiar with him, you, you've probably read his uh, letters. There's a Banner of Truth uh, edition of his of that book out. And those letters are flowery and devotional, um, vivid, pastoral. Um, and then the same Rutherford wrote Lex Rex, which is a political treatise, which is heavy, weighty, scholarly, turgid, uh, and the stylistic difference between Rutherford's letters and Rutherford's uh, uh, work writing political theology is a dramatic one. Well, that's because Rutherford was a man of genius and he could write in more than one style. He could write in more than one genre. So uh, I don't think I don't see that there's any difference um, here with with the Apostle Paul now. How do you account for the uh, uh, the difference? There are th- three basic ways you could account for Hebrews being from Paul 
and yet accept the fact that this the style is uh, remarkably higher. One is to uh, say that the apostle Paul wrote to the Hebrews in Hebrew or in Aramaic, and which is a dialect of Hebrew. He wrote to them in that language, and what we have is a translation into Greek, and the stylistic polish is given to it by the translator. That's that's a possibility. Uh, another possibility is, so the thought is Paul's, the structure of the argument is Paul's, but the style is the translator's. Uh, another possibility is um, the lecture notes um, approach, where someone took notes listening to Paul preach this, or uh, they took notes listening to Paul lecture on this. And so the structure of the argument is Pauline, the thought is Pauline, everything about it is Pauline, except for the style comes from the note taker who, who takes those notes and then smooths it, smooths it out. Then the third option, and this is the one that I prefer, is that, um, uh, is that Paul was a man of genius and, and not a one-trick pony, uh, that Paul, when called upon, uh, when he had time to prepare, when he wasn't in the middle of a pastoral crisis, when he wasn't trying to manage a pastoral kitchen fire, um, he was able to sit down and write a, um, a, a learned and polished treatise, which is what the uh, book of Hebrews is. So that said, that, uh, that's um, giving a, an account of... Um, my answer to an objection, but what what would be my positive argument for the Pauline author of authorship of Hebrews? The first is I believe the Apostle Peter tells us um, that Paul wrote Hebrews, and here's how this goes: Second um, Peter in Second Peter three, fifteen and sixteen, um, Peter refers to. Uh, Peter is writing to a particular group of people, and he tells these people that at, he uses the phrase, as Paul wrote to you. So he's, uh, whatever the recipients of this letter from Peter, um, that group, that same group, got a letter from Paul. Uh, well, what's that group? Well, you can see um, that Second Peter is written to the same group that First Peter is written to, and and in First Peter, it's written to the Jews of the it's written to Jews in the dispersion in all these named regions. It's written to a a, a group of dispersed Jewish believers, and Peter says, in effect, to these people that he's writing to, uh, it was the same way with our beloved brother Paul as he wrote to you. Well, when did Paul write to that group? When, when did Paul write to that group? Um, I, I would suggest that the prime candidate for a letter of that nature to that group from the pen of Paul would be the book of Hebrews. Now, um, in um, John Owen uh, argues for the Pauline authorship of Hebrews at, at length, and, and what John Owen points out is this. If, if you say someone, uh, the, you know, Martin Luther suggested that maybe Apollos, for example, wrote it. 
we're told in Acts that he was an eloquent man and he was mighty in the scriptures. And, and the author of Hebrews was an eloquent man and was mighty in the scriptures. You know, so it could have been Apollos and could have been Barnabas or someone like that. But as John Owen points out, what this means is that the church was in possession of a letter from the Apostle Paul that Peter referred to, and the church lost that letter from Paul and substituted another letter to the same group of people from another guy and then didn't write down uh, who that other guy was. So that's, um, that's argument number one. Argument number two is that the book of Hebrews was admitted into the canon of Scripture on the strength of its Pauline authorship. The Western church, there have been, there were doubts about the Pauline authorship of Hebrews in the West from the beginning at the time of its inclusion in the canon. Um, but in the East, where they were closer to the action and, and uh, you know, they were um, closer to the language it was um, uh, composed in and so forth, uh, the eastern end of the church was absolutely convinced of the Pauline authorship of Hebrews, and their certitude uh, convinced the western church, and the entire church included it in the canon because it was from Paul. Uh, so uh, I think that's a, another strong argument for the Pauline authorship of Hebrews. So our book review for uh, podcast episode 73 is uh, a book called Job, Victim of His People. This uh, book is by Rene Girard. Now, I, I need to begin any, any kind of uh, uh, plug or review or positive um, reference to Girard needs to be accompanied with a warning. I think Girard is one of the most insightful writers of the 20th and 21st uh, centuries. I've learned an enormous amount from him, um, and I've, I've learned a great deal that helps unlock a lot of passages and truths of Scripture. The problem is, um, for Gerard, uh, it's one of those, you know, to the 10-year-old boy who's given a brand new hammer, uh, everything looks like a nail. Or to the person who has only a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Um, Gerard has a profound insight into mimetic, imitative desire as a key to human action. He sees this, he has a profound insight into this. He sees it, and as a result, he sees it absolutely everywhere. And I think he should only see it most places. So um, he, he takes it to the nth degree. I wish he would take it uh, um, not quite so far. Basically, if you take Gerard and take his insight and absolutize it, you're going to find yourself uh, adopting uh, some heretical understandings of uh, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. You're not, going to, you're not going to be able to see it as a true substitution with the Father truly pouring out his wrath on his Son. And... Um, you're gonna you're gonna interpret the crucifixion in some other way, and I think that that's a I think that's a disastrous thing. Uh, 
But with that said, Gerard is still, with a caveat emptor, take all these warnings on board, Gerard is still an enormously helpful writer. Also keep in mind, and this is, this is annoying, I, it's, it's annoying when you find helpful writers that don't accept the full authority of Scripture. They, they don't hold to the inerrancy and infallibility of um, Scripture, which Gerard do, you know, clearly does not. But with that said, Job, victim of his people, um, is a commentary on the book of Job, and it helps unlock that book. It helps unlock the what's actually going on uh, in that book. I think he gets the, um, I think he gets the prologue wrong, and I think he gets the the bookends of the book of Job uh, wrong. But there is something enormously helpful about how. Gerard reads the book. So think of it this way. Uh, Job is uh, from the land of Uz. The land of Uz, piecing a bunch of things together, is in Edom. Um, Edom is uh, that nation descended from Esau. So you have um, uh, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, and then uh, Jacob and Esau. The Edomites are uh, descended from Esau, and uh, we learn in one of the biblical genealogies that the second king of Edom was a man named Jobab, J-O-B-A-B, Jobab. I take Jobab to be the biblical Job, um, but even if, even if he's not the king of Edom, he is the wealthiest man around, as uh, the book of Job makes plain. So the second king of Edom, Job, is um, well-to-do. He's the richest man. He's, he's a rich, rich man. Now, what happens is, uh, and this is, this is the thing, this is where uh, uh, Gerard's uh, insight comes in. Uh, when... Uh, Think of Oedipus at Thebes. Oedipus is the king, and Thebes is undergoing a great plague. It it is revealed that the king of Thebes uh, had murdered his father uh, and married his mother, uh, and, and then as a result has to be exiled. So basically, the problem, the, the, the community, the city, the city is going through this terrible event because of a sin that the king committed. And so the king takes one for the team, and Oedipus, being a good pagan king, takes one for the team. This is the routine. This is the, the old um, this is the this is the way of the world. Uh, the leader, uh, resigns for the good of the country, for the he he takes the blame he takes the fault takes the blame. Well, I think that this was the position Job was in. You have to realize that ruin for Job was not simply one man's portfolio in the stock market. Uh, ruin for Job meant economic distress for everyone around. So, uh, how much of the economy was dependent upon Job? And Job's three friends, I'm asking you to recast this scenario. Take Job as the king. 
He's the king of Edom. He is ruined. The king is ruined. The wealthiest man in the east is broke. He's bankrupted. He's sitting on an ash heap, scraping boils. And then uh, three members of his cabinet come to commiserate with him. And they sit quietly with him for seven days. And then they say, okay, Job, and they do, let's move into the, let's move into the well-accepted routine now. You need to admit your fault and take one for the team and step down, step aside. Let us, let the healing begin. We need to do something about all this ruination that's all around us. And Job flat refuses. He doesn't do what Oedipus does. He doesn't do what a, a dutiful pagan king would do. He defends himself. And this throws everything into con a state of consternation. How, how dare he? How dare he defend himself? Everybody knows that this is the point in the theater where the king takes the blame, takes the hit, takes the fall, and quietly exits. And Job didn't do that. And uh, this outlook on facing accusation is really a refreshing one. And I believe that if, um, if you remember those qualifications, and Gerard is not sound on the atonement, and Gerard is not a biblical infallibilist. He's not a biblical inerrantist. At the same time, he sees things going on in the book of Job that are manifestly on the surface of the text that a lot of other people uh, just don't see. I commend it to you. Our hamartiology section today um, uh, is the word is the word is anastaro, anastaro. So it it this word literally means to re-crucify, to crucify again, and it's used only once in the entire New Testament. That's in Hebrews six six. Now, in line with what I just argued on the Pauline authorship of Hebrews, I think here the Apostle Paul is saying that those Christians who return to the sacrificial system in Jerusalem are those who crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, who crucify again, who re-crucify. So crucify afresh is the unusual rendering, um, and that's because of the very nature of the case. Because of the very nature of the case, crucifixions are not events that are repeated. Uh, crucifixion ending in a death means that you're not going to do it again. So those who returned to the old Judaic shadows were guilty of returning to the place where no sacrifice remains because they were all fulfilled in the death of Christ. No sacrifice remains uh, back in Jerusalem where you're going because they're all fulfilled in the death of Christ. And at the same time, uh, these people were returning to Jerusalem in order to crucify Jesus again. The repeated sacrifices had ceased, and so the once-for-all sacrifice was repeated. If you, uh, if you ignore the fact that the, the sacrifices that were repetitious by design, if you ignore that and, um, and go back to them after they ceased, what you're doing is repeating the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross for sin. So um, 
One other comment about this to help put this uh, re-crucifixion in perspective. The book of Hebrews is uh, basically imagine uh, the conversation on the dock. And you've got Jewish Christians who are contemplating getting on the ship and sailing to Jerusalem. And their, their intention is to sail back into the practice of blood uh, sacrificing bulls and goats. Um, chapter 10 says, if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no more sacrifice for sin remains, but a fearful expectation of judgment. So if you read that as hellfire, as a timeless exhortation to every man, and you say to a random group of Christians, have you ever sinned? And they would say, yeah. Have you ever sinned willfully? Yeah, I'm afraid I have. Did you sin willfully after you received the knowledge of the truth? Yeah, that too. Well, there's no more sacrifice for sin for you, right? Jesus is no good for you. What, a, what despairing counsel. That's not what it's talking about at all. If we sin willfully by going back to the blood of bulls and goats, after we receive the knowledge of the truth, that there's been one sacrifice for all sin for all time, um, no sacrifice for sin remains back in Jerusalem where you're being tempted to go. But what is back in Jerusalem where you're being tempted to go? A fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the adversaries. That's what, you're, that's what they were going back to. Basically, the, the Jews who were being tempted to return to Judaism in the mid-60s of all, of all times, Jesus says, this uh, generation will not pass away till all these things are fulfilled, which means that the temple had to be destroyed by 70 A.D., and here are these Christians in the mid-60s saying, hey, let's go back to Jerusalem now and let's start worshiping there. I think Paul's saying, no, there's nothing there but a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the adversaries. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.